Welcome to the S2 Cognition Podcast. S2 is the official cognitive evaluation in sports, from youth to pro, where athletes and coaches build to win. Welcome to the S2 Cognition Podcast. I'm your host, Harrison Hunter, and today we're joined by both S2 Cognition co-founders, Scott Wiley and Brandon Alley. Today we're going to clear the air on what S2 Cognition is, what it isn't, and some of your most frequently asked questions. You know, after the NFL draft, there was a lot of misinformation spread about S2, right? So many questions and comments asked by people who hadn't heard of us before. So in an interest of setting the record straight, we've answered the most asked questions circulating S2 Cognition, including, is this evaluation scientifically valid? Can you prepare for this and improve? Are there any biases in this test? What happened with the leaks this draft? All of that is next here on the S2 Cognition Podcast. Welcome to the S2 Cognition Podcast. I've got both co-founders here, Scott Wiley and Brandon Alley. And with today's discussion, we're just going to walk through a few questions that have been sent in to us. Thanks, twitter.com, email, however people have been reaching out. There's been this these questions that are asked and, and we've not really had a chance to answer on our own platform. So I thought it'd be a great idea to have both of you here, uh, the two big guns, to talk through some of the most asked questions we've gotten. And first, we're going to start with Doug from Arizona. Uh, Scott, Doug from Arizona asks, is the S2 eval scientifically validated and are there peer-reviewed studies to support the test? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. That's a foundational question. If you're going to purport to evaluate split-second decisions in elite athletes, you got to make sure that what you're assessing, what you're measuring, is valid, it's real, it measures what it says it's going to measure. Um, there's probably two ways to think about the validity of the S2 measurement uh, tools and the tasks. The first is... Whenever you measure something or you introduce a test, particularly a test of cognition, or a test. if you're creating the test from scratch, if you're inventing the test, there is a much greater burden to demonstrate all of these important properties that it measures what you say it measures, it mm -hmm. measures what you say it measures consistently, reliably, there's minimal practice effects, and so the burden of establishing validity is much greater if you're starting uh, with a test or a task from scratch. So when Brandon and I assembled these tasks and, and, and created the S2 evaluation, we didn't create tasks from scratch. We actually reached out into the scientific um, literature, the, the cognitive sciences, the brain sciences, the neurosciences, and identified the best tasks, the best tools that had been studied for years, decades in most cases. Tasks that had been studied in terms of building and understanding that they measure very specific systems in the brain. Even studies of functional magnetic resonance imaging, brain imaging to identify the different circuits, the different pathways that are associated with these cognitive skills, the effects of drugs, the effects of medications on these processes, sleep, nutrition, fatigue, stress on these processes. Um, these tasks have been studied in terms of how reliable they were. If you take a test at time 
A and then at time B? Is there consistency? Um, these tests have been used in the medical environment to study uh, the effects, again, of medications, pharmacological treatments, how diseases impact these cognitive processes, and treatments for those diseases affect these systems. So these are some of the most widely studied research. The validity underlying all of our tests is as good as you're going to find in the scientific literature. So to answer part of Doug's question, the validity of these tests is well established. Practice effects, test retest reliability, and they all pass a very stringent set of criteria that Brandon and I put together to make sure we're using the best of the best. Now, the second part of Doug's question, I'll let you answer this, Brandon. <laughs> okay, these are well established for lots of applications. We understand these tools. We understand the cognitive systems. How have you established the validity for athletes for yeah. its use in, in sports? Yeah, and, and that was really the first step was we wanted to look at um, are there differences between athletes and these populations that have been studied, right? So we're typically studying undergraduates. There's, uh, as you pointed out, some of these tasks may have 5,000 studies just on the one task using undergraduates. We actually thought athletes were a little special. Right. Maybe these athletes can think faster and process information faster and that kind of thing. And so the first step was um, let's assess athletes and let's look at it that way. And of course, uh, Scott, you and I and, and colleagues have published on this, the differences between athletes and, and regular folks on our tasks. Right. And, and, and those papers are, are, are well established. Um, what we did, though, is we created athlete specific batteries uh, and databases for each of our sports. And so football, as an example, the first process we went through was uh, meeting with coaches, meeting with players, meeting with front office folks to understand, you know, are we capturing what you guys are interested in? Does it match up with the scouting profiles? And so we went through a, a three-year period that we really tinkered with each task. We, we removed some, we put some in, we changed some to really make sure we were matching up with what the scouts were seeing. That was our sort of first criteria in football. Um, at that point, we had built up uh, a couple of thousand football players uh, to where it is today where we've tested thousands of elite college and pro football players in which we use to compare, right? But the next step was a little bit more objective. Can you find relationships to on-field performance, right? And those are one of the things where, to be quite transparent, you know, we work with our analytics groups, at our teams to evaluate this. And we've been in the NFL for eight years now and our teams are doing those analytics at a high level. Hey, do some of these measures uh, predict on-field performance? Do they pr predict some of the PFF metrics, some of the telemetry metrics, those kinds of things? Yeah, we absolutely do that on a regular basis. We don't share those, hmm. and our teams don't often like sharing those. Well, Jaden from California is going to ask that, and he's not going to like that response. But we'll get to that later. <laughs> yeah, there's a reason they don't want That's, us to share. Right, exactly. And so, you know, given that there's some level of exclusivity, they're not going to share those things. And so, what you've seen us write about in some of our white papers are some of yes, they're sophomoric. Uh, type measures, career passer rating, interception rate, drop rate, things that we have access to that our teams don't have access to, right? And so 
yes, we're finding relationships on the field, which I think are most important for us to say, are we measuring what we, what we say we're measuring in football players in that context? Right. That's the hope, right? To, what I hear from this is you guys put together, based on what you found in the sciences, people that, I mean, to get through this criterion process is a huge process to get these tasks validated. Yeah. I mean, it, it takes it's years a, it and years. Long, yeah. 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 So Brandon and I have, have spent most of our, our careers as, as academic uh, academics in, in major medical centers, running research labs. We've published on a lot of these. And and just how the brains work in general and how they break down with certain diseases. Um, the idea that we could take these same tasks and look at the other end of the spectrum is what was so exciting to us. And this is what's really interesting is we're learning things about the superhuman end of the cognitive spectrum. These athletes, there's another layer of validity is when you look at athletes at the highest level of performance, they're wired differently. And in sports where you have to make the fastest, most complex decisions in dynamic situations, these are the extremes of human performance. Right. Athletes, yep. law enforcement, military theater. I mean, these are the extreme of human performance. And it is not surprising that the best of the best are just wired to see and process things. Yeah, and to put that into perspective a little bit, because I, we have seen the comment, uh, so-and-so's uh, leak that he scored at the 97th percentile, that doesn't sound very high. Um, well, it's at the 90, that means he scored better than 97% of all NFL guys taking that test. So the top 3% of all NFLers. That seems to me, that's, that's pretty elite. And, and, and if you put NFLers against the average person, they blow them away on a lot of these tasks. So you're looking at the, you're comparing them to the upper echelon of human performance. Right. And so if you're performing at the 97th percentile. Well, it's like a 40-yard dash lean. time, right? You compare it to what NFL players run instead of Joe from Human Resources. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That'd be pretty funny. You right. have him in the That's combine right. running right next to these guys. And, and to put it even in a little bit more context, Scott and I had the opportunity to test the top 10 Halo players hmm. in the world. These are gamers. Yeah. They they live on this kind of thing uh, day in and day out. And the elite athletes uh, destroyed the mm. elite gamers. I mean, the, the elite gamers did well. They their average score was about the 68th percentile. So not to not to throw them completely under sure. the bus. Yeah. But those guys that score above 80 on the S2 in, in football players. I mean, these are elite. Special dudes. Yeah. yeah, special dudes. Yeah. What kind of leads us into the next question that Ashley from Washington had, Brandon? You kind of went into how and why. I mean, you even alluded to this as well. But how how does each sport get the certain tasks yep. that, that you guys came up with, right? Because the baseball evaluation, different than the football, that's uh, different than the golf evaluation. How, how did how did we yeah. come up and select those? It's a good question because I, I, I do think, um, you know, uh, as Scott and I, we always sort of joke, you know, we're, we're the scientists aspect of this thing. We, we know sort of how the brain works and, and we've studied that in our labs for years, but really we always go to the content experts and the content experts are the coaches and the players, the, the guys who live and breathe this stuff. And so our first level, our first pass in any sport um, and say uh, football as an example, we didn't just come up with all the tests and say, Here, here's what football players have to do. Right. That, that first two or three years at LSU, it was literally digging in with Corey Raymond, the defensive backs coach, to, to really dig in and understand what does a safety have to do? From pre-snap to post-snap to tackle, 
What does he have to engage in? What does he have to do? And we went position by position. And then we captured those tests that we know if he says, well, he's got to broaden his attention. He's got to see the whole field. He's got to see all these people coming out of the backfield, keep track of receivers. Well, there, you know, there are tests in the scientific literature that have studied that exact process for decades. So we took that one, that test, and started evaluating athletes. And then we began to make some subtle adjustments. So as an example, in the scientific literature, that task usually takes 10 to 15 seconds. Well, there's no NFL play that lasts 10 to 15 seconds. So we modified the time frame. The number of things that they have to track is what a safety or a quarterback might have to track. And the speed at which our objects uh, move mimics what the speed of, of athletes moving across the field are. So we really have worked with uh, the content experts and, and you know, I, I, uh, Scott and I talked about this a while ago on a podcast was, you know, the, the best, the most enjoyable thing about our jobs is we have access to some of the best scientists, some of the best minds in cognition across the world that we've collaborated with, or we know through, you know, our, our connections, and that we can approach, and we have podcasts on the website, that we can talk to some of these experts. So some of these guys will study just one cognitive process their entire life, and they're experts on it, and we can talk to them about the subtleties of it and what it measures. On the flip side of that, we have access to some of the brightest minds in sports, some of the best coaches and athletes that give their input on that. All Scott and I are doing are taking those two uh, pieces of information and trying to translate it for each other, uh, trying to translate the science for the coaches and athletes and trying to translate the sport uh, for the scientists so that they can help us get better. That's a beautiful part about that. I mean, in soccer, we've looked at what a goalkeeper has to do and what a goalkeeper has to do is not the same as a midfielder. And you've looked at that extensively, talked to plenty of coaches. That's what, exactly what I wanted to get into. Yeah, yeah. I think Brandon said it perfectly. It really is taking the conceptual understanding uh, based on decades of incredible work by some of the most talented cognitive and neuroscientists on the planet and merging that with some of the most talented um, coaches and sports minds. And and we get to play in this in the sandbox right in the middle. And I think Brandon said it, it, it perfectly. But, you know, when you start looking at these different positions, you're right. Even within a a position if they're getting the same battery there's going to be different cognitive styles because athletes are wired differently and we're starting to see that a running back may have certain cognitive skills that lead them to make certain kinds of decisions and be effective in certain you know an open field versus a running back who's very patient and good at making those quick read decisions behind the line of scrimmage to then hit the hole or basketball players that can see the field, have eyes in the back of their head versus the, the player that just has incredible ability to time their jumps and their their uh, rebounds. Um, across sports, there are certainly tasks that overlap. What well, turns out you got to have good impulse control <laughs> across a lot of sports because yep. being impulsive yeah, oh, yeah. and making you know quick, reflexive mental mistakes gets you in trouble in just about every sport. Uh, but there certainly are some unique differences. Um, you know, some sports like like a baseball or softball hitter, they're standing in the batter's box. There's a fixed spot, roughly, where the, they're going to pick up the ball and they got to process that really quick. And it's the same kind of structure every time. But then you have sports like football, soccer, lacrosse, that are hockey, much more dynamic. Things are fluid and flowing. You're playing 360 degrees. Very different than what a hitter's doing. So they 
they they require us to think carefully and um, to really build batteries that are focusing on the skills important to those positions. So we've talked about the tasks, right? We've talked about the science, the validation, what all has come from this. Lakin from Seattle wants to know what the evaluation looks like. So here are all the tasks, here's the science behind it, but what does it actually look like? What does the athlete sit in front of it? And how does it appear when they're taking the, we like to call it evaluation, not a test. Evaluation sounds more like what we do. Yeah, the, the evaluation is administered on a specialized laptop gaming computer. Um, and then we have a special response pad or box that allows us to measure reactions within a couple milliseconds. And so it has an internal clock built on it. The programming is absolutely critical. We're using the technology and the strategies that we use in the lab when we study speeded reaction time to make sure that we know when every pixel lights up and decays on the screen to when within a millisecond or two of when a response button is pressed. Hmm. Um, so it's on a computer. We're either presenting things fast, moving things fast, you're having to search through things quickly, uh, or you're reacting fast, timing fast. We're getting you to bite on things. And we are looking at sub-second typically sub half second kinds of processes from how you process what you see to have a, how you use your memory dynamically to recognize things, pick up on things to how you control your reactions, your impulses, how you improvise and switch directions very quickly. And so the, the entire task is uh, our evaluation is, is engineered around millisecond level precision. This is not your standard test. We bring the heat. We are pushing brains to the brink of failure. We're pushing them to see how far we can push them until they make mistakes. And so that's one of the cool things is athletes get up all the time and they say, that was the hardest thing I've ever done. That was brutal. That felt like a game. And that's because we're, we're engaging these same systems they use when they're right. playing. We're getting them to make the same kind of mistakes that they feel that are real in the game. And, and, and it, it just connects with, with everything they're doing when they're competing and when they're playing. Hmm. So to sort of wrap that up in a nice package that addresses some of the questions that that I've also seen is, right, this is not paper and pencil, hmm. right? This is not a test in which you have time to uh, reason through or think through. It is purely reaction-based, right? And it's not something that you're going to be able to do. It, it's just so... Uh, precise that you can't do it over the web or you can't do it on an iPad or some device where there's response latencies and there's there's differences, uh, there's variability in a touchscreen and in, in, in accurately capturing reaction time. So it's really built for millisecond precision on things that are we're asking you to react to, um, not think through. So it's completely sort of devoid of things like IQ and book smarts and, and test taking and preparation and that kind of stuff. I like that you brought up preparation because that leads us right into my man Dion from Massachusetts wants to understand, can you prepare for this? That's his simple question. Can you prepare for something like this? Yeah, and and you know, and, and in some of the media, we've we've gotten hit with that. Oh, over the next five years, guys are just going to start preparing for it. 
Well, you, you can't prepare for it. You, you, you legitimately cannot prepare for it. And when Scott talked about us taking the test from the literature that had the, the best test retest reliability and were sort of resistant to practice effects, really that means you could take it multiple times and you're not going to improve your performance. We are actually getting at the capacity, like how your brain is wired uh, for each of these cognitive skills. So you could you could take it a thousand times if you wanted to. Your score is not going to change that much. Well, that's literally DJ from Tennessee goes, yeah. can I score better if I take this over and over again? <laughs> so you're kind of lumping this answer yeah. and response into yeah. both of those questions. Yeah. yeah, I wish it was that easy, um, but but no, you, you can't prepare for it. You can't take it over and over and over again. As a matter of fact, just recently, Scott and I looked at, um, we've, we've worked with, uh, with five of our Division I, high-level Division I programs to test guys uh, on regular intervals and look at the test-retest reliability. And some of these guys took it multiple times mm. over their four- or five-year period on campus. Uh, and the, the, the correlation coefficient there was actually 0.893, which is really, really high. Um, in general, we saw guys may shift about five percentile points. Um, and that's really not a lot. Mm -hmm. I know, I know, well, five percent better. Uh, it's not that you're getting five percent right. better. It's just that you've scored five, you know, and so we've got a little bit of a window there for optimal testing. Uh, 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 scenarios, right? We're not always at our best. Hmm. Uh, you go in the weight room to get your one rep max. You're not always there. You have bad days. You have off days. Well, that was what I was going to add. Was some uh, almost all of this is related to the athlete's willingness to get to that threshold point, right? If it's a bad day for him or yeah. her, you don't know, you know, yes. what the output's yeah. going to be. Like as you know, and I think it's a good point to bring up because as opposed to like the concussion testing, <laughs> you can't fake good on this. Yeah. Like you can't score well. <laughs> on this, just sort of mailing it in. Yeah. Uh, in the inverse, we've seen a lot of times where uh, just internally, we, I mean, we test and test and test and test this thing, but you know, we have our own guys maybe giving 80%, you won't pass it, yeah. right? And we have our own built-in checks within the system to determine whether somebody's responding randomly or they're responding too slow or too fast. And it doesn't allow you to move forward. It gives you a specific instruction. So really you have to have it dialed in. But even on days that we dial it in, sometimes we're not at our best, right? Or we're over-caffeinated or under-caffeinated or whatever it might be. Uh, but in general, we don't see a lot of movement with guys who take it almost weekly for <laughs> extended periods of time. And I think, Scott, you can echo That's those what, yeah. data in baseball too, right? Yeah, absolutely. So the test-retest characteristics in the general population for all of these measures was is rock solid in the acceptable ranges. <laughs> and we weren't satisfied with that. Right. We're dealing with athletes, and we did a test retest in baseball with a, a 10 to 12-month window. So one of the things, if, if you're unfamiliar with test retest characteristics, when you test somebody within a couple hours, a couple days, a couple weeks, that's generally what test retest, how, how test retest studies are done. So you got a short period of time, not, not, not a lot of time for interventions or development or any of these external factors, internal factors to, to intervene. We did it after a 10 to 12-month period, and they were at spring training and, and fall instructs, and we got them in this, this, this window. 
We didn't even control for time of day. We didn't control for when they were coming off for practice. I mean, we generally would work with our teams to say, hey, we don't need athletes who are absolutely wasted. (laughs) And so we we have some some restrictions in there and some constraints in there we we put in, but the test-retest characteristics uh, over a a 10 to 12-month period were better in many cases on many tests. All were acceptable. Some were better than the general population that had been studied over shorter periods of time. So, And I think that just is owed to the fact that we're dealing with these incredible processing machinery in yeah. these athletes. One of the one of the last questions we received on like the validation piece or a common one is, you know, and you, you, you answered this a little bit or alluded to a lot of this, the cultural or education biases that surround testing and how smart people are in your education, the standardized testing. Can you allude, because some of those have cultural biases or educational biases, how, how does this not have that? Yeah, one, it's not intelligence. Right. Two, it's not correlated. These tasks are not correlated with book smarts, with educational attainment. Um, and, and so we're looking at kind of the, the raw computing power. Uh, we've, got, we've tested athletes from different countries, from uh, hmm. South and Central America. We've tested a- athletes from as far as Africa and Asia, um, athletes over in Europe. And so we, we have a good sense. Um, there are certainly, like in, in baseball, we, we test a lot of athletes that come from, uh, for example, the Dominican Republic. Mm-hmm. And um, it is incredible. We have we have stations down there with our baseball teams, and they're testing and finding 14, 15-year-old kids who, who just have a genetic gift. They have this incredible ability to see and process things really well. Now, certainly in situations where there might be, you know, only a few years of formal education and, and maybe not quite as much opportunity for nutrition and sleep hygiene kinds of experiences, there certainly is an acclimation period for, for doing the kinds of testing we're doing on a computer and uh, with even with a mouse or a button box and that. But that aside, I mean, it's, you know, athletes of all shapes, sizes, cultures, yeah. uh, creeds, uh, this this is going to be uh, a, an equivalent um, measure of their performance. Yep. And and we've, we've tried to support that with our own work, right? I mean, we've looked at, in the football, you know this, Harrison, in the football batteries, we've looked at um, what college they've gone to. We've looked at race. We've looked at what time of day they've taken it or which all-star game they've taken it at, and we find no differences. Okay. So, um, yeah, it's it's a, it's a really unique thing. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, and certainly, Scott, you know, we've, we've talked with, with uh, coaching staffs and stuff like that. There are athletes that struggle to get it done in the classroom, but they absolutely crush the S2 eval. Absolutely. When you cross those white lines and you're playing at those speeds and, and in that dynamic environment, you're using an entirely different set of cognitive decision brain systems right. than you use in the classroom. And so it, 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 it's not surprising that how you do in the classroom is not a predictor of how you do on the field. <laughs> right. Interesting. Don't need vocabulary and That's calculus right. on right. football. Oh, Jack Marucci right. would totally support that. <laughs> I'm just a kid from Pennsylvania. Charlotte from Maryland asks, what is the S2 score? And I think it's a great question. It's a broad question, but it, it really wants to hone in on what is it we're measuring? What is the S2 score? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Let me break it down first. Okay. 
And so we're measuring very specific cognitive systems and processes. We measure multiple in each of our evaluations for each sport. So what we're trying to do, and, and this gets at, at the, the overall, we're trying to break down all the decision-making processes so an athlete can understand where the potential bottlenecks are, the struggle points are in, in certain kinds of decisions, and where the areas that they can take confidence in that they process well. And so these things happen so fast and outside, often outside of our awareness that we have no idea where we, how we process what we see, how we react compared to other athletes. We see the effects of our decisions. Sure. But, and when we make mistakes, how many athletes sit there and rack their head and say, I don't want to be swinging at that pitch or... I don't know why I made that pass at that moment. There are cognitive decision reasons, and we're trying to understand um, where in the process of playing the kinds of decisions and the kinds of quick processing that you're, an athlete will struggle with. So we have all these individual processes. The overall S2 score is how your combination of skills ranks compared to the reference group. So if you're being compared mm -hmm. to other Division One. Women soccer players, you're gonna have your S2 score is how does your particular combination of scores compare? So is it a useful information? Well, as a quick and dirty snapshot, right? Mm -hmm. If it's high, that means you probably bring a lot of high level scores. But it also means there could be some low ones in there that you don't appreciate with the high score. And same if it's lower, you may have a few high ones that are really important to your style of play or mm -hmm. what you're doing. Great point. You have to understand. So the overall S2 score, it is analytically and statistically important in some models. But if you only look at that score, you're missing the richness of the evaluation. You're missing the entire context because underlying that score is the meat of how an athlete is wired. That's going to help them with understanding who they are how they need to adapt and how they need to train. Quick, right. quick and dirty snapshot, but that you may, you're not going to understand the why, right? The why behind the decision. Yeah, not only the why, but um, all of, like Scott said, that rich contextual information. And so uh, making this more relevant to why we're doing this video, right, is some of the scores that came out in the sure. media, right? And so let's say you've got a quarterback that scored a 90 well, you don't know everything that underlies that. It doesn't just assume that he's going to be this great quarterback. If he's got a 10 in tracking capacity, which is your ability to broaden your attention and see the whole field, he is going to have difficulty in a system that requires him to have reads from sideline to sideline and make judgments based on movements of players. Right. If that's what he's being asked to do, it doesn't matter if he's got a 90 overall, he may still struggle in that system. Right. So the S2 is is more about trying to help athletes and teams um, understand how that athlete is wired so that they can put him in the best situation to succeed. Again, uh, an athlete with a low number doesn't mean that he's going to be a terrible athlete. Right. He will have some strengths in there that he can do very well. It may be a limited playbook sure. or it may be a limited within a context or scheme, but it doesn't mean that athlete won't have success. And can execute in, Correct. in that scheme. Back from break, Jaden from California is up next. How is it possible that a computer-based test evaluation accurately predicts on-field performance? Scott, we'll start with you. It's a great question. Yeah. It's pretty cool that it does. <laughs> 
we can put an athlete in front of a computer screen and we can flash things, move things, have them react to things and fundamentally understand how their system works. And that is the same system they're taking onto the field, onto the court to play and to perform. You can't get wrapped up in the fact that it's a computer game. That, that is not how cognitive scientists look at these. These tasks are designed, carefully put together, engineered, linked to activity in your brain to measure and isolate very specific cognitive systems. These are the systems that we use when we play. And so it, it, you can't trivialize it by just saying it's a computer game or it's on a computer. It's the underlying process in the system. I'll give you an example, impulse control. We have system in our brain that helps us govern and control our motor reactions to things. And that system protects us from reacting too soon or prematurely, uh, impulsively. When we're in a performance situation, well, guess what? That system varies from person to person. Some people have incredible ability to hold back strong, reflexive impulses. Other athletes, other human beings, the first thing their brain starts to load up and prepare to react, they have a, it, it's, it's out the door. <laughs> It's, or more frequently out the door. And so we're measuring the impulse control system, not what you're seeing on the screen. The screen is just creating the engagement of that system. And so it's important to understand we're measuring systems. These systems are then applied in a performance situation. And that's why we see linkages between how your brain is wired and performs these cognitive systems and on-field mental mistakes, on-field exceptional metrics and statistics. The linkages are there because your brain is your central engine when you're outperforming as an athlete. So we're measuring impulse control system. You just happen to show that in football. You just happen to go through that in basketball, yep. in baseball, right? Yeah, and and you know, I've used this example several times. You know, if you if you are sitting at a red light, you know, in the lane next to you is the turn lane, and that green signal goes on. I oftentimes just impulsively hit the hit the gas, and then you got to hit the brake, right? That's your impul right. impulse control system, the same system that prevents you from road raging. Uh, it's also the same system that prevents you from swinging at sliders out in the dirt. Even though it looks fat coming out of the hand, you've got to resist that that impulse to swing. Same same system that, that prevents you from jumping off sides on a hard count, uh, from pulling a jersey when you feel like you're getting burned, uh, from throwing an, a, a, a ball in, an, in a partial read. You didn't see the, the, you know, the DB cutting across to jump the route. Um, so the impulse control system governs those types of behaviors. We measure that system for nine different cognitive skills that go into the football battery. So that same approach we take to how well you can visually search through chaos uh, to locate a target, um, you know, and we, we look at how fast you can do it and how accurate you are. So we build essentially the, the it, it builds a profile of the way your brain is wired. And when you're equipped with that profile, you can not only understand some of the whys behind mental mistakes, 
but how you're wired to play. And we're all wired to play very differently. We all know the kid on our basketball team that could see passes before they happened. And we're, you know, that's the guy you wanted in the middle of the one three one, right? Uh, versus the guys who were a little bit slower to react and needed more time and things like that. We're all wired differently. And, and I think that that's the generalized approach of S2 is trying to help athletes and coaches understand how they're wired so that we can make some assumptions on the field. And it's not a one-to-one -one analog, right? I mean, Scott and I are never going to get in the business of saying that we can tell you exactly what's going to happen. And we laugh at that all the time, right? There, we have a, a task called uh, perception speed that is able to, to, to determine how well someone is wired to see things that happen visually fast, process visual details of a pitch. Um, it has been, in our Major League uh, Baseball analytics groups, fairly predictive of, of, of certain velocities, guys that it can hit certain velocities. But we do get asked the question, well, can this guy hit 98 miles an hour? <laughs> well, that's the situation where it's not a one-to-one. -one. It's not this score tells you it's, if you want to know if you can hit 98 miles an hour, put him in a cage, throw 98 miles an hour and see if that happens, right? Uh, and again, that may not happen all of the time. Right. But again, it's just understanding how an athlete's system is wired, the capacity of that system, and how the pattern results is ultimately inform their play. Yeah, and I think that's a great example. And if someone struggles hitting 98, it may be a mechanical right. piece of it, mm -hmm. maybe a physical aspect, or it may be a cognitive, the perception speed. And so this is helping to reduce uncertainty, to, to, at, to get at this one piece of cognition that is critical. Here's another analogy. When you go into your optometrist and you get your visual acuity checked, you stand at a certain distance and you're looking at a chart with letters on it. And you say, well, how can that be a valid evaluation of how I see? I don't walk around out in the world and just see letters all over the place. <laughs> That's not the intent. Right. The underlying process that gives the optometrist an understanding of, of your level of visual acuity that you then take out into the real world, and that has implications for how well you see things, how well you see things at night and at distances. And so that's essentially what we're doing. Right. So not getting wrapped up on the, these are like little video yeah. games. These are very sophisticated. Years of science to understand and perfect how do we set up a task to understand and to measure and to elicit right. a very specific cognitive system. So, What's well, a great point. Both of you touched on video games. Okay, so if you're a good gamer, are you going to do well on this evaluation? Yeah, great question. And there's been a lot of science to look at that specific question um, about like brain development. So we've got these young kids nowadays that, that are growing up playing mm -hmm. video games. Um, does that mean that they're changing the way their brain is wired? Does that mean they're going to be great at S2 and subsequently are they going to be great athletes? Um, all of those are very hard linear jumps to make, right? I think the scientific literature is showing that at one time we thought there was no relationship. But I think the literature is actually showing now that um, kids who play a lot of video games are more uh, uh, do better at vi visual spatial tasks. Um, now the chicken and the egg thing, and Scott and I have this this talk all of the time, which comes first, right? Because we tend to gravitate to things we're good at, 
right? And so I played Fortnite for about two months of my life because it turns <laughs> out I'm not very good at it. But had I been good at it, I might be like my 14-year-old who lives on Fortnite, right? So I think there's a little bit of that. Um, we, we talked about a little bit earlier that we actually did test the 10 best Halo players in the world. Um, and it would be assumed that given they play video games all the time, they would just destroy us too. And they did well on us too. They, they were in the average to high average range. They did not outscore the elite athletes, right? We also have athletes and we have front offices who say, my guy plays video games nonstop. Um, he didn't do well on S2. Or the inverse. We have guys that play video games nonstop and he crushed the S2. Is there any relationship between there? I think, again, having some experience and exposure to reacting quickly, that will allow you to, that sets up the fundamentals of being able to perform in high reaction yeah. time frames. Does that mean that you can do it on the football field? Right. I don't think that that, that, that that linear jump is is too far of a jump to make, right? Because, um, again, look at me physically. I could be great at video games and great at S2, but uh, I am not 6'5", 210. Uh, subsequently, I'll have difficulty in the NFL, right? <laughs> You've got to put it all, all together. Sure. Okay. So you're essentially saying, I mean, in either direction, just because you're a video gamer doesn't mean you're going to score well on the S2, and vice versa, just because I don't play video games, I won't score well on the S2. That's right. And that's how it comes out to be the context of what we're doing. Absolutely. We've tested thousands and thousands of athletes at all ages, some of whom are video gamers, many of whom are not. And they're you can be do just as well on S2 as not. One of the things I remember from testing those those elite Halo players is how they responded after taking the S2 evaluation. They said, geez, this is this is like raw processing power. There is no advantage we have because they don't have a context. You know, Halo is a game. It has visual scenes. There's action-oriented uh, reactions you have to make and you learn those reactions and how to use the controller and how to navigate in situations there's a context to their development and their training and when you operate in those kinds of contexts contexts often you probably do either have skills in that context and the visual spatial or you probably enhance it if you're doing it at a very young age but they were amazed at how uh, it stripped away all of that context and allowed them to really see how raw the, their skills were. And I, I, would, I would say this. I think it would be super cool to have some of the best gamers do some kind of a big athletes versus gamers challenge. So if you're a gamer out there and you want to bring it and do an ultimate competition to see who's got the maddest cognitive skills, who are the baddest processors on the planet, I think uh, reach out to S2. We'd, yeah, we'd love may to have to get Mr. That. Beast involved and he can reach fun. out to somebody. <laughs> that'd be fun. Yeah. Would be. You guys have actually alluded to this a lot throughout, but I don't think it's been answered in one succinct 
question, how are the teams using this, right? We've thrown many examples out. How are teams using this, yeah. regardless of sport? Yeah, and, you know, the football example is just fresh because of everything we went through. And, and, and you know, the score leaks that came out leaked out one number and yes, no decision. Well, you we shouldn't take this kid because he scored low. You should take this kid who scored. That is so far removed from... Uh, a what we've built, uh, but B how team how teams use this right, and so as we talked about earlier, you know you 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 get a pattern of scores, you get multiple cognitive uh, processes, and so you understand how an athlete is wired, so that you can can know how that athlete is going to succeed on the field or may struggle on the field, and so we literally sit in draft meetings for hours. Sometimes some teams, it can be 20 hours prior to the draft. And the first question we always start with is what is the role of this player that you're looking to draft here, right? And it could be a defensive back, right? But there are seven different types of defensive backs. And so if you're asking a defensive back to play on the line, press coverage, man v. man, that is a very distinct cognitive profile that, that requires one to lock in and focus, not fall prey to misdirection, be able to improvise in the moment, have very good perception speed to be able to process things very quickly, which is way different than a safety or even a, uh, you know, a nickel type corner that you're asking to drop back in coverage. See the whole field. Make sure that you're covering this side of the field, but you also have to be concerned with a bat coming out of the field or a slot coming across the middle. Those are different cognitive patterns. They're wired differently. So we're just helping teams and we're informing teams about the way the brain is wired so that they can kind of put the right guy in that right position. No team in history, we've been, this is our eighth NFL draft, have said, I'm going to take an S2 guy because he scored 92 uh, and he doesn't fit our scheme. He doesn't, he doesn't have the physical Physically, skills. we don't like him. Yeah, it's psychological. He's, he's a mess. But we're going to take him because of that S2 or the inverse. Right. Right. And it's also important to understand context like with position. And I've said this on a few podcasts, right? Um, at the at the defensive line position, let's take an edge rusher as an example. If you've got a Miles Garrett who is six six and can run four four and has a forty two inch vertical and can put an offensive lineman on his rear in a heartbeat, it doesn't matter how many objects he can track. It doesn't matter. This cognition is is not as important at that position with that athlete. So you're looking at the whole piece of the puzzle. You're looking at his physical characteristics. You're looking at his psychological makeup. You're looking at, especially on the line, you're looking at all that technical things, footwork, hand placement, leverage. Um, you're looking at game experience and game knowledge. So it is one piece of the puzzle that goes into the overall athlete evaluation um, aspect of things. And so... Um, again, teams, um, you know, we get asked about uh, in the media about, you know, well, well, if it doesn't show on-field performance metrics, that's not our job. Our teams are finding the on-field metrics, and they take that knowledge into the draft room to say, okay, here's what we here's what we know about players in the past who have scored this way and how they perform. 
right? Or we've got, okay, we've got Joe Burrow. Here's his profile. We've got a matching profile. Perhaps this athlete will play like Joe Burrow from a cognitive perspective. So being able to use it in that way is, is just informing their, it's, a, it's part of their selection process, not a selection tool. We never just drop data on a, on a team and say, here you go. Right. It's a constant discussion about a player, about how a player fits, about what a player's limitations are. And, you know, back to the Miles Garrett example, let's just say hypothetically that defensive end had low impulse control. Well, we know low impulse control leads to some to some jumps offside. If you've got a guy who's got who's averaging two and a half sacks a game, I think we can deal with the jumping offsides occasionally, right? So it's understanding how it's going to manifest in play, what your tolerance level is, all those kinds of questions. It's much more complicated than I saw so-and-so scored 84, that means X. Right. And, and what are some of the examples that you've seen yeah. how teams are utilizing what S2 about? Yeah, you know, I, I just had a recent conversation with a, an elite Division I women's soccer program. And there was rolling up our sleeves, looking at the cognitive profiles of, of these highly talented um, female soccer players, and they were trying to make decisions about their positions. You know, is this an athlete who can distribute, can see the field, the point guard, if you will, or the quarterback of the offense? Uh, or is this someone we just need to get the ball and let her make things happen at the goal? Um, and so looking at those cognitive profiles, and they've been wrestling with shifting a couple other athletes, and this gave them that confidence that, look, we, we put her here. She. We're asking her to do things that she might actually struggle with cognitively. Right. So I think those kind of position decisions. But then probably the other big application and the one we get enjoy the most is, all right, I see how these athletes are wired. What can I do yeah. to help them? How can I get them to play at their full capacity? Because just because you have good capacity doesn't mean you've trained it and shaped it in the sport you're playing. And then how do I keep some of these lower areas, these, these struggle areas from showing up on the field? And the player development application is huge. And it gives coaches a deeper appreciation and understanding for the why that underlies mental mistakes, struggles, and uh, allows them to at least begin to address the issue through more targeted training. Uh, we see this on baseball and softball. Um, hitters with with low trajectory predictions, so they they uh, they misjudge um, a little more uh, consistently the where the pitch is going to cross the hitting zone, or they have poor timing, and so they're they're susceptible to off speeds after fast balls, or or vice versa. How do we begin to help an athlete develop those skills, either adapt their strategy or their approach, or directly train these systems and there are ways that's the cool thing about starting with systems that we know a lot about is because we know how to challenge them and to train them and to push them around and our big thrust is doing it on the field doing it in play smarter cognitive drills on the field on the court keeping the bat in the hand the ball in the the action in the uh, in the drill and in the concept, and then 
adding more cognitively informed drills and, and pushing them so that these are more likely to transfer into the, into the game. Well said. Madison from Texas. Why can't you guys release scores? We can, we can assess the validity of the product if you just let us see who scored high and who scored low. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, part of this is in, in the way that we came about, um, you know, we, we, were, we did originally start at the college level and were, that was our, our mission was to help build better athletes. Well, as scouts started coming around college buildings, they saw this as a scouting utility, a scouting, uh, you know, that's something that they could use in their scouting process. And it started out really small. Um, in both pro football and pro baseball, it smart, started out with a very small group of folks. Uh, not only to take a, a three-year period just to make sure of the validity, make sure that we're measuring what we say we're measuring, make sure it's matching up with performance, <laughs> um, and their analytics groups really digging in and understanding it. But they wanted to keep it relatively small and just expand slowly. And so we've kept exclusive arrangements with these clubs. It started out with one team in every division and is currently now in, in pro baseball and pro football and two teams in every division. And that's to allow these teams to have that level of exclusivity, to have that edge over other teams who don't have the scores. So the reality is, is that not only is it exclusive to them, but it states specifically in the contract that we are not allowed to discuss scores. Right. So we can't talk about scores. We can't release scores. Um, we can't talk about specific players. Now, yes, have we had instances like Brock Purdy? like Joe Burrow. Those scores have been put in the media. There are a couple of examples that are different in nature. A guy like Joe Burrow, we've been working with Joe uh, when he was at LSU, right? And he scored well at LSU. It was one of those things where we were really using him to understand a lot of quarterback stuff. And we asked him, uh, can we can we use your scores to to put on the website and to show the sort of strength and power of the S2 evaluation? He said, yeah, no problem. Um, the Brock Purdy thing was a, a completely different type of example where Brock actually works with a very specific uh, quarterback coach, a professional quarterback coach who we've had a long relationship with, and his coach tests all of his athletes to help them develop. Well, when Brock was having a lot of success, his quarterback coach said something in the media about the way he scored on the S2, and so that kind of spun out of control. So we don't actually discuss scores. We don't leak scores. We don't talk about scores. Um, they remain actually the exclusive property of those teams that pay for us uh, and, and pay a good deal of money to keep that in-house in the small group of teams. And, you know, yeah. at, at the collegiate level and at the youth level, the teams, the organizations that engage us too, they own the identifiable data. And so we are not at liberty to share their data. They want those data to be, to remain in-house. They use it for their own edge in training their athletes and training their players. And, and so we are, we don't release scores because this these are data that teams use in the draft, recruiting, and player development and analytics uh, lines to maintain an edge and get an edge. You know, we're still scientists. And so we still publish, we still do work. And so we understand the, the value of data and having multiple eyes and data sets um, that, are, that are open and objective and, and face the scrutiny. Um, and so it pains us to not be able to re release scores and, and to yeah. share scores. But 
Um, this is a competitive environment and landscape we're operating in. <laughs> right. And to be quite transparent about that, each club, I mean, we, we, we work with some clubs that have six or seven uh, anal analytics folks that do analytics on that, right? And while they, uh, some clubs inform us of uh, valuable relationships they're finding on field performance and some don't, um, we find the value in that they continue to work with us year over year. Yeah. Some of them don't even share with us what they're finding, yeah. right? They're that, they play their cards close to the vest. And right. so that's, uh, it's fun to try to figure out what they're, what they're finding <laughs> and try to ask them questions to understand the relationships. But you're exactly right. We knew that the success of S2 would, uh, would hinge on the value that teams would find in connecting it to your ability to play at the highest level, connecting it to on-field metrics, and um, that has what has, has led to ongoing uh, continuous success in this area. All right, Mia from New York asked the payoff pitch. What happened with the leaks? Yeah, what a what a seriously unfortunate event, and it really upset us. Really bothers us. Leaks uh, of data are, are not fair to the athlete who we care about, who are important to us, who have instilled their trust in us. They're not fair to the organizations and the teams that um, pay for exclusivity, pay for an edge, and 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 want a product delivered. Um, and they're not fair to S two. Um, you know, we, we, we take a lot of pride in data integrity and relationships with our teens and providing a, a service. Um, we've got S2 employees that have families that depend on, on uh, you know, our running our business and running S2 with the highest degree of integrity. And so when leaks happen, um, first and foremost, they're not from S2, so you Better not put much stock into the scores, and have we've we've seen scores that were wildly off, and um, they're not certified by S2 because we don't leak scores, and uh, it's really unfortunate. Um, again, it, it's just unfair to athletes. This is an exciting time in a young athlete's life, trying to make it to the next level, and you know, for someone to to take a shot, they, they got to be tough, have tough skin. But, but doing something that wasn't intended to be shared publicly uh, by virtue of our relationships and contracts with the teams, it's just very disappointing. Yeah. 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 And, you know, I also will take, you know, uh, some time to address the fact that, you know, well, we've seen Joe Burrow score out there. Oh, we've seen yeah. Brock Purdy score out there. Uh, there are different instances, right? So, so, so we had worked with Joe Burrow for a couple of years mm -hmm. at LSU. Uh, we did wait until after he was drafted, so it wasn't used in an inappropriate way. But we got approval from Joe Burrow to share his scores just because it was helpful uh, to show the power of S2 uh, when conceptualizing Joe Burrow. Uh, Brock Purdy's, some of Brock Purdy's scores uh, uh, were, were in the media. Uh, that's because Brock works with a pro uh, quarterback coach and has for years. And that quarterback coach happens to use S2. He uses it with all of his athletes to help with the development process. And I think when Brock had a lot of success and they were interviewing his coaches, some of his scores came out. And so ultimately they ended up talking with us and we had permission from his quarterback coach and from Brock to be able to, to do that. 
And then, you know, we've had guys like Kirk Cousins reach out and say, hey, can I can I take it? And so he was willing to talk about his scores right. on a podcast that we brought him on. So, you know, in the limited instances where you've seen data um, from S2 or on an S2 social or something like that, it was with approval of that athlete and the owner of the data. So your Joe Burrows and your Justin Jefferson's LSU own that data. We had been working with those athletes well before they were in the NFL. And so we had permission to talk through things uh, that were uh, helpful and, uh, and for, uh, for illustrative purposes. So I think it's just it's also important to clear up some of that. Thanks for joining us today on the S2 Cognition podcast to talk through some of the you know, misinformation, the questions people have about what we are, what we aren't, and how we can clarify those things. You guys put a lot of hard work into this, into this product and how we measure things. So appreciate both your times today. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you, Harrison. Thanks for listening to the S2 Cognition podcast. We hope today's episode provided educational knowledge about the S2 Cognition evaluation and how we are helping teams and players make faster, smarter decisions on the field of play. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe with the plus sign at the top of your app, leave a review about the episode, and share with your neighbor. Follow us on Twitter at S2Cognition and Instagram at S2.Cognition. If you're interested in getting in touch with the show, please visit our website, s2cognition.com slash podcast.